Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Today I welcome to the Morning Glory Project Judy Temis. Judy was just 5 years old when she was left by her parents seeking to escape communist Hungary. With borders sealed in 1969, there were few options for crossing the East-West Divide. Her father, a Holocaust survivor desperate to leave Hungary behind Hungary's totalitarianism and the legacy of the Holocaust, used tourist visas to take his wife and 12-year-old son to the West. These visas, however, came at a high price. One child would need to be left behind. Left with an anti-Semitic uncle And in a destitute Hungarian village, five-year-old Juditka had to cope with not only her parents' apparent desertion, but with questions about her real identity and what it meant to be a Jew. Judy documented her story in her debut memoir, Girl Left Behind. She's a former journalist, a secondary humanities teacher in Seattle, and the mother of three children. Judy, welcome so much to the Morning Glory Project. I'm so pleased to have you here. Thank you so much. It is an honor to be on your show. Thank you. Well, let me tell you, I just finished reading your book yesterday, and there have been just a handful of books I've read recently. A couple of them I've featured, the authors on this very program. But there have been a few books like this that have, I don't just read them. They're living in me even when I'm no longer reading and between times of getting back, I found myself worried about this little girl that I was reading about. Your your story is so touching and so moving and vulnerable. I, first of all, I just want to thank you for writing it. Thank you so much. I, I really, really appreciate that. Um, I, I that's exactly what I what you want to hear as an author, and you want to hear that you've elicited that reaction from your readers. And my big goal was to take our, my readers along with me on this journey to tell that story from the child's perspective in some way. Well, and you just touched on exactly what I was going to say next. What's really special, I think, about this story is two things. One is I know very little about. Hungary and the climate certainly of that era, or even now for that matter, I I get little wisps of it here. We Americans tend to be quite ignorant of the history of other countries, sadly, (laughs) and uh, and Hungary being a, a more humble country in so many ways, we don't hear so much about it. So it gives us a bit of the historical context, but this is not a history book. This is, this is written exclusively through the eyes of a child from age five to 10. Exactly. And I think that that's part of what makes it so vulnerable, so touching. So I want to ask you uh, for 
this ignorant American. (laughs) You were born in 1963. Can you give me a bit of the context in which you were born in Hungary's history and and where things were at that time? This is obviously in the post-World War II era. Can you give me a little bit of context to help set this up for us? Absolutely. And thank you for asking that question. And it's an interesting challenge as a writer, too, because I initially, it's, you know, you, you write and rewrite many times a book like this. And uh, I think in one of the drafts, I had about 50 pages of history in there, which my my good friend and editor basically said, uh-uh, we don't want to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Your readers will find out for themselves, you know, what they need to know. Wikipedia is there. But yes, I'd be happy to set the scene. So I came along in 1963. I'm the child of a a Jewish father and a Catholic mother. And their story in Hungary is incredibly interesting because for these two people to meet and how they came together was was fascinating um, and so unlikely in many ways. My dad survived the Holocaust in Hungary. The Holocaust uh, came to Hungary in the German occupation of 1944. And within very short, a matter of six months, Hungary's Jewish population was decimated. And his he lost his entire family in that he and his half-brother were the only ones who survived. He went on to return. He returned to Hungary Everything that his family had was gone, and he had to restart his life. So there is a an, an incredible loss and tragedy right there um, that he had to survive. He basically decides that he wants to go to medical school. He takes whatever resources and assets he's able to muster, and he goes to medical school. He meets my mom. My mom is in medical school for different reasons, which I can tell you about also. This is 1945 or so. Now, Russia, the USSR has now come in and is, has established and made Hungary a satellite country of the USSR of communism. And my parents live under this regime. And um, in 1956, so about uh, 10 years after this, there was a brief period when if you were unhappy with this government, which many people were, was a totally, I mean, it was communism, totalitarian government, very little freedom, no opportunity to leave the country, if you will. You were limited in terms of your housing options or how you wanted to live. And my father chafed under those rules and he did not feel comfortable under those rules. And there was still a lot of lingering anti-Semitism. So around 1956, he would have had a chance to go to leave the country, but he was just newly married. He had, my brother was born that year, and they just didn't want to risk it. So they stayed and remained, and my father continued to be unhappy. He was a very outspoken man. He, when people asked that he go to the May Day Parade and march along the streets with pictures of Stalin and Lenin, he didn't want to do those things. He listened to Radio Free America secretly. And these things were adding up and, and costing him in his career. He had a hard time advancing in his career because of that. And in fact, he lost his job. He had to move from the city to a village to be a doctor. My dad was a physician and so was my mom. And um, he just, you know, at one point decided he could not, he could no longer stomach this and he had to go. And that's what brought us to eventually to 1969. I was about five years old and my father at that point was like, I can no longer do this. And he made the very, very difficult decision that he needed to get out of Hungary. So the rule though, by then, by 
1969, they were no longer allowing whole families to travel. They were, they were afraid of defections, correct? Exactly. So, so the rule was you could get a travel visa, but in order to assure that you would return, you had to leave one of your immediate family members behind. Exactly. And this is typically what happened. Uh, unless you were a member of the Communist Party, a very high ranking official, you were well connected, and maybe then you could uh, maneuver these visas. But certainly not for my father, who people had already pegged as a, you know, a dissident of sort and an outspoken critic. So there's no way that he would have qualified for anything like that. Well, and he was Jewish and people knew he was Jewish, but he had changed his name, correct? He did. He did. So after that whole ordeal, and he, um, he, he changed his name from Berger, decidedly Jewish name, and people would recognize it as that, to Boros, which is like, in America, it would be like John Smith, a very common, typical Hungarian name. And so did his half-brother. They both changed their names. They both completely hid their Jewish identity, not practicing at all, and married um, Christian women, mm. both of them. So here you were at five, in the opening scenes of the story, you're living with your family, you're living in a certain degree of comfort uh, in the small village that you had, right. perhaps an enviable degree of comfort in to, to many around you. Yes, that's correct. So my, my dad was, uh, he was... Um... He, he was a kind, he was an ambitious man. I think that's fair to say. He wanted comforts for his family and he wanted to surround himself and his family with nice things. And he worked very hard and he was able to bring together three apartments, actually. You had to bribe officials in order to get an apartment larger than what you might need. And uh, he actually was figured out how to do that. He traveled to the capital city to get lovely furniture. He, we filled our house with, with, we had a television set, he had a car, we had music, we had books, we had a lovely home. We had a nanny, housekeeper, caretaker, you know, who cooked meals every day. And some people did resent that. Some people looked at the doctor and said, you know, how does how does he get to have these things? Well, and then the lingering anti-Semitism, too, that was some of the complaint in the pre-war years in Germany, yes. how the Jews had had those who had risen to a level of accomplishment gained resentment. Exactly. Somehow they were dishonest or thieving or taking away from others. That's the sort of one of the the sentiments that fomented the already existing anti-Semitism, of course. And and those feelings did not disappear with the war. Uh, it's just because the, the, the war was fought and it was over and, and most people never returned. Um, uh, but for those who did return and made it back, those lingering, those feelings were still that very much there. Mm. And for someone like my dad, who was you know, who, who was, who somehow managed to get these things that was uh, resented very much. Well, so now that's the grown up woman's looking back and understanding the history and the, the context. But as a child at five, when your parents made this decision, they didn't sit down and announce to you that they were leaving and going to America. Yes. No. Can you tell us about what happened there at, when you were five years old? 
Yeah. So I was five years old and my father again made this, this difficult decision with the visas and I was told nothing. I was told that my parents are going away to Vienna, to this beautiful city. There's a, there's a, a palace with a thousand rooms. There is soccer toward this delicious cake. And I, they will come back with stories and presents, but I would have to stay with my grandmother. And she, my grandmother, my mother's mother lived in a small village in a lakeside village, and then they would eventually come home. And my book opens with the scene of my parents getting ready to go on what they tell me is this vacation. Uh, they know that this is no vacation. And the reader will pick up on that, that the, the parents know that they are leaving the country for good, right. but the child knows nothing. And told in the perspective of the child, I, I'd love to go with them. I'm crying. Please take me with you. But I, I'm not allowed to go. And there's only one person who knows of their plan, and that is my mother's mother. And they had a secret agreement between them. Hmm. And uh, the secret agreement was that if they make it through the border from Hungary to Austria safely, and they get to Vienna, she would send a postcard. And the postcard, if they decide that, that from the Vienna, they would continue to travel to Rome and then to New York, she would send a postcard. And the secret code was... Vienna is beautiful. And my grandmother would know that those words meant that we're not coming home. Take care of little Yuditka. She's now your responsibility. And it must be said, too, that your grandmother's circumstances were humbler than had been your own. Yes. Now, this was a, a place that you had visited during summers because it was near a lake. It was you considered it kind of visiting grandma and summer vacation kind of time. But it was, though it was a lakeside home, my impression from reading is that it was a significantly more modest place. Yes, yes. So, so this is a, a beautiful lake in Hungary called Lake Balaton. And many people come in the summertime to visit, and it's a completely transformed little place in the summertime. It's it's a place of like beach balls and bikinis and bright towels and and um, and boats and sailboats. And and if if whoever has lived in a in a place that is a tourist place, you know that in the winter time it's 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 dark and drab. And 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 my my grandmother's house had been once a beautiful home, but they did not have any of the resources to upkeep it very nicely or, or to put in um, decent electricity or running water. So, so um, this is my, the, the house belonged to my uncle and the women in that house just worked tirelessly day and night to try to upkeep this home. And the circumstances were very different. There was no meals together. There was no music or art or even books around. Um, you know, in some ways, food was food was scarce. Um, I remember. I mean, the, our, the the food that I remember eating almost every day was uh, cream of wheat. <laughs> which I happened to love as a child and my grandmother sprinkled with, with chocolate powder and sugar. But, but that is what we had for dinner every night. And there was a sense of poverty and, and, um, 
and and want and need. The house was desperately cold all through the winter, and my grandmother had to feed these. Every room had a heater, but we only could afford coal to heat one or two rooms during the winter time. And there was this constant bickering between my uncle and my grandmother, who, who you know, stop sending money up the chimney, you know, and put on your coat. And my grandmother trying to just keep the house warm enough for you know for for for, for a child in the house. And and your grandmother proves to be such a crucial person in your reality. <laughs> She's the the safe harbor, and it, it must be said too that that her, so your uncle, so her son in law, was a difficult person, and he held his own anti Semitic beliefs. Yes, yes. So my uncle on that side of the family, he was my mother's sister's husband, and. And yeah, I mean, he, he, he was not an easy man. I mean, he, he did not help very much around the house. He expected to be taken care of. He, he expected his meals to be served to him. And he commanded these two women in the house day and night. So everything from where's my food, where's my meal, where's this, where's that, get me this, get me that to something as abhorrent as like not using the outhouse in the house and because there was no indoor toilet. And my poor grandmother had to like take his bedpan, you know, in the morning out. And this was her, I mean, she was like a slave to this man. Mm-hmm. And they just didn't know how or have the words to speak up for themselves. And they didn't. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he was, he, he was, I mean, the words that I overheard my, my uncle use is, and I don't want to repeat them, but with reference to the word Jew, I had never heard that word before, but he used it in this context of a slur. And I, and it sent me like wondering, like, what, what is he saying? These are like, not how, this is not the, the man, the father that I know. And I thought he was describing my father as some kind of a monster. Well, so, so at age five and from a family that, who had tucked, you know, your father had essentially tucked away his Judaism, I'm sure, out of both fear and safety and all of those motivations. Right. So when, when you would even hear the word Jew, you, you were, there's a one point in the, in the book where you ask somebody, what is a Jew? And, and then I was sent to um, Catholic education catechism classes, um, which was not very, was frowned upon by the government. But there too, I would hear that, oh, it was the Jews who, poor Jesus, you know, right. <laughs> who, who, who were responsible for hanging poor Jesus. And it, and it was like the context for, for discovering those words was, was, was terrible. And I had no idea what, what, what it meant. And there were no books in our house. There was nothing nothing that I could research or, or, or ask. So I finally asked my grandmother because she was the only person I was, I felt safe to ask. And she, her, she turned around and, and in the book, she's, she's, she's feeding the, the, the coal into the heater. And she turns out who called you that? Mm. And she was afraid that, that children in the school had started calling me that, and I was like, no, no, Grandma, I, Mamika was the word that, that this is what we called her. Nobody called me that in school, but I heard Uncle use that word. And she constantly would just say, oh, he's such, don't worry about the, anything that he says. He's just, he's just saying those things. It doesn't mean anything. So she herself couldn't explain it to me, mm. what it was. Well, so the two sentiments that 
I'm taking, I can't come away with from your story. One is this innocence of this child who doesn't understand the politics or the, the racism or the, any of the bigotries that come along, but also the sense of longing. So you're told that your parents are going to go on vacation. And of course, then you think they're going to come back in a short period of time. And eventually they do indeed uh, immigrate to the United States, to New York. And then it becomes the dream that you're going to go to America to be with them. So the whole story is takes place between your years of five and 10. Clearly you are here in the United States now. So we know that the end, the end you do indeed come here. I'm not giving a spoiler there, right? but this dream of coming to America. So it seems to me that in the first little while, the, the first year or two of that time, you are, in, you are hopeful. You're, you're this, I'm going to go to America. And then at some point in your development, I, it seems as your memories of your own parents fade, it's hard to keep them up. Mm-hmm. You start thinking that's not ever going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And, um, our understanding of time as children also changes. So when my grandmother first told me, which was not for about five or six months after I was living in her house, and she just kept saying, any week now, they're coming home, they're on a vacation, it's going, you're going, they're going to take you home with them. And then she eventually sits me down and tells me, actually, your parents have moved to America. And then she does this pivot and says, what a wonderful thing this is because you're going with them. And I become like the, the, the little celebrity of the schoolyard because even though in our textbooks, America is this terrible place and it's always described as these capitalist traitors and how greedy they are. And we had these textbooks with... Uh, Americans with dollar bills in their eyes and fat stomachs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, This is how we were educated under communism. Um, The kids in the schoolyard knew somehow that this was a special thing. And then the years go by and I, and and there was very little communication between my parents and me. There was that annual Christmas letter and a few letters in between. An annual Christmas letter that had information for your grandmother written in cursive and a very small message in print for you. A small little message in print for me. And she didn't let me read, right? And I couldn't read what she had written to her. She was, I don't know if she was trying to protect me or that she, and I think that she was at some level trying to protect me by not letting me read those letters. But she wrote, my mother wrote me just, we, we love you, we miss you. And and then when it became really hard for me, was there was one Christmas, maybe it was the third Christmas that I was there. The letter was, we hope to see you ne- by next Christmas. And it was, I was around eight years old, I think at the time. And it was this light, this bulb went off, like hopefully next year. That's a long time. Well, now you realize what a, what a year is from Christmas to Christmas where a five-year-old wouldn't. Right. Exactly. It's a heartbreaking moment. It, it kind of realizing that. And, now, the five years, this was not your parents' design. <laughs> that it was not their anticipation no. that this would happen. And indeed, your uncle proves to be somebody who complicates the process that causes some of the delay. Can you share a bit about, how, about that? 
Yeah, so my understanding, and I only came to discover this later in life when I visited Hungary with my mother, and we had a long conversation. I, I took notebooks and took notes, and with my with my godfather, who is actually turn, was responsible for helping me with this whole process, and I have him and my godmother to thank for what they did for me. But he shared with me that at some point, my uncle. Um, had me declared an orphan, abandoned by my parents, uh, which allowed him to get paid by the Hungarian government to take care of me. Because you were essentially a ward then of Hungary, not you were a ward of the state. Uh, yes. So he mm-hmm. could have a monthly stipend of some sort. And right, right. that's what complicated them trying to move you, eventually move you here, is that they had to get the agreement from the Hungarian government, Yes. Yes, the Hungarian government always had final decision about this matter because, you know, they 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 were the ones to decide what what would happen to me anyway. But as you said, this this kind of complicated the whole thing and made it drag on and made the whole thing more difficult and more bureaucratically involved. So ultimately, we we know the end of the story that you do indeed uh, because of the aid of an, an American congressman and your godparents on the other side, that eventually, and, and eventually your your uncle did sign papers, and so that it could happen. So you are reunited here. But I'm wondering during this time, during this five years, it, there was great hardship. Uh, you know, not only poverty, but then the the feeling of being abandonment, the discovery of of being a Jew and knowing what uh, beginning to understand the difficulty of what that meant. What do you think kept you going for in a child's mind how how did you keep going? What do you think gave you made you survive those those years so this is such an interesting question because it it made me think about you know innate personality traits and then who we are surrounded by in our environment. And I think, you know, I am in some ways kind of a an easygoing person and I adapt really well to situations and maybe that's just out of necessity. Um, and some people who have read the, the book have described, you know, Yuditka as kind of like, like a plucky, resilient child. But to a great extent, uh, there was so much. Uh, my grandmother was always by my side. She was a constant presence. And she always let me know that that this this dream of going to America will happen one day, and she never let me give up on that dream. And she whether whether I, I was sleeping with her on the on the mattress on the raggedy old mattress on the floor curled up with her, she would she had this old dress, this frock of a dress. She was a widow, and she never changed into in, in the the. The custom of the time was that if you lost your husband, you wore black for the rest of your life. True, in, in Italian families as well, I can tell you, yes. the elder women wore black to the end of their Entire days. Entire to the end of their days. And she would take out, but every night she had a little chocolate bar, a little piece of candy for me. And, and she would sit with me on that raggedy old mattress and she would tell me, Yuditka, it's going to be okay. You're going to see your family. They're waiting for you. Your mother is waiting for you. She loves you. And even in my hardest moments when, you, you know, as a child, you have these moments like you break your arm or you get sick or, or, or you're embarrassed at the beach, which those are three things in the book that I talk about. And, and, and she was always there somehow. She was always there to remind me that, that, that don't lose hope. And I think in our lives, 
we just have to uh, find the people like whatever it is that you're going through find the person who you know you can count on who you know loves you and 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 um and and accept that love you know like like just just use that love to allow to to shelter you and i don't know it's not knowingly that i did that as a child but she very much did that for me and that love was was incredibly important to me i mean if i don't have psychological scars from this it's because of my grandmother mm. she was she was incredibly and 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 poor and 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 she she had she was stooped she had like dark like her nails like it's funny because my my cousin is now a and went on to become a she does nails for a living and my grandmother had these long nails with like dirt buried under them forever for as long as I remember she had no teeth (laughs) she had like white hair covered by this little kerchief and and despite all those things um she just she had a heart of gold and and I owe, I owe that to her. And I think also I had, I didn't have like bullying and things like that in the schoolyard. Like nobody like made fun of me or anything. I was, the kids looked up to me because I was going to America. You did You were that. special. I was special. I was this little celebrity. Isn't that funny? So, so, so that really also helped a lot. Well, I'm wondering also, and, and we have such limited time. Oh, I wish I had another hour to talk with you. Um, but <laughs> we have limited time. And, and two things come to mind. One, the obvious question through the whole story is either why didn't your mother stay behind with you uh-huh. or why did they choose your brother? He was older and perhaps he could have been more help left behind and you were so small. Do you, do you have any insight into that? Yeah, great questions. I I do. My so my brother was twelve, thir- going on thirteen at the time. So part of it is as like traditional culture, like he's the boy, so we're going to take him with us. Mm. And I hate to put it in those terms, but I think that was part of it. And the other thing was that in the back of my father's mind must have been that the notion that if this takes many years, if this takes more than five years, which it did, my brother would turn 18, he would have to be drafted in the military, and that would be the end of it. He would never be allowed to come. Mm. So in the back of my father's mind was the possibility that indeed this would take so long. So your age was an advantage in that way, but a disadvantage to you. Correct, correct. And in terms of my mother's decision, uh, you know, I know that my father drove this decision. He was the one very much who wanted to, to, to have a start at a new life. He wanted to leave the story of the Holocaust behind and have a new chance to, to start life in a new place. For her, it was extremely difficult. Um, she had, was a beloved doctor in, in, in the town. Um, she was a physician. She had confidence. She was, she was respected by everyone. So for her to leave everything behind, um, including her only daughter, and you know, I know for a fact that, that it was incredibly hard for her and painful for her to make that choice. Mm-hmm. And in the end, why she did it, I think she did it because she deeply loved my father, uh, even though sadly at the end of, toward the end of his life in America, he abandoned her. So that's and a whole other story and maybe another book, <laughs> but, but, but it was incredibly hard for her and she made the choice and she feared for his life in some ways. Mm-hmm. She shared with me that she feared that, that he would have a breakdown of some sort, that he could not keep from 
criticizing the government that either he would have a mental breakdown or he would wind up in prison, mm. which was very real because because people. Um, the way communism worked back then, neighbors talked about neighbors. And if you had something to gain from snitching on a neighbor, oh, they got that television. And how did they get that television and things like that? Or, or he's not going to the parade or he's talking about things this way. That was a real possibility. So people out of fear or desperation or jealousy or any of those things yeah. could spill the beans. Well, there are two lines in the epilogue of your book that I want to say read if you if you don't mind about your relationship this is after you've reunited and you you this is many years later and you're talking about your mother um and she she says basically that uh she chose her husband over a child and she said i was a coward and then your two lines are she did not ask me to forgive her nor was forgiveness needed those two sentences have lingered with me since i finished reading this book she didn't ask me, nor was it needed. Can you say something about the not why it wasn't needed? Uh, I think it wasn't needed because we had an understanding that I understood the reasons that she made the decision that she did. And it didn't need to be maybe said. Like the words, I forgive you, didn't need to be said because they were actually already there. Hmm. I think that I was able to forgive her over time. And she spent, we kind of did this full circle in some ways toward the end of her life as she became frail and sick. She lived with me. She spent the last four or five years of her life with me, surrounded by her grandchildren. Hmm. And in those in those years, especially, she and I connected like never before. It strikes me that that's a, a replacement. The five years that you lost with her, you gained with her at the end. There's a certain exactly there. And it wasn't easy to convince her to come live with me. She wasn't sure that, you know, that that she could do it or I could do it. And and it was it was like a miracle. It was really a replacement. You're mm. right. I'm glad you used those words. And we needed that time to heal our relationship. Well, Judy Timmis, it's a beautiful book, Girl Left Behind. And I strongly recommend reading it. It's it's touching and moving and inspiring as well. I want to thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project and sharing your story, not only in your pages, but with your voice as well. Thank you so much. This was really just wonderful. I really appreciate the opportunity and and thank you. Oh, as is so often the case with the conversations with my Morning Glory Project guests, I wish I had a whole other hour to talk to Judy Temis. Her book, I have to tell you, Girl Left Behind, Left Behind in Me, such a sense of longing and understanding of what it must have been like for her. She writes it beautifully. But whenever I come back to the basic question that we always ask here on the Morning Glory Project, which is, how did you get through what you got through? Judy's answer was twofold. One was something that was part of me, part of my personality. I was a plucky little girl. But also, you must find that one person that loves you, that gives you hope, that never stops. You know, when I think to the most troubling things that have occurred in my own life and in the lives of those close to me, I think of how many times that's true. How many times, yes, you have to tap into the reserves of your own personality, your own spirit, your own strength, 
but that you also really benefit from having that one person, just one person to give you hope. And what that inspires me to think about is how we can be that for someone else going through their own dark times. How can we be that light that continues to promise just a little glimmer of hope? We may not be able to fix somebody's circumstances as Judy's grandmother was unable to fix hers, but she was able to continue to reassure her and to be there and to love her through it. That's my extra bloom from this story. But I have to tell you, it's a meadow full of flowers when I read a book like this because there's so many extra blooms to learn from. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Morning Glory Project. I so appreciate your time and your attention. And I wish you not only your own strength and the love of those around you, but that it causes you to bloom.